Um, it's actually, it's nice going last and that I get to hear everybody else's talks and maybe refer back to them. There's a bit of pressure because um, I feel like everybody else was a really great speaker. So um, my title is the longest I've ever chosen for a talk, out of focus, into perspective, making the familiar foreign and the foreign familiar by viewing higher education research through an international autographic, autoethnographic lens. The sequel, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't, I, this might be a very outdated reference, but does anybody remember when Fiona Apple had her sophomore album? It was like a, the whole album was a, a, a few 90s children in the room. The album was, the title was a paragraph long. So I'm um, going for my sophomore album here. Um, so I, um, as usual, I think I've prepared too much, so I'll try to get to as much as possible. Um, uh, so I'll be starting with a bit of telling stories, talking about getting personal. Uh, talking about seeing the world, uh, hearing student voices from my own research, and questioning what is familiar. So, um, I love this quote from Brene Brown. It's from her TED Talks, one of my favorites still. I'm a qualitative researcher. I collect stories. That's what I do. And maybe stories are just data with a soul, and maybe I'm just a storyteller. Um, and I definitely feel that's true for me. That speaks to me. Um, and I want to start with something that might seem unusual because it's not related to higher education, but I think it is related to um, understanding the world. So has anybody lived through an earthquake? A couple hands? Okay. Um, I was, I'd just gotten out of my undergrad degree and took my first job. I'd moved to California. I was 21. Um, it was after work and I was baking cookies. And uh, all of a sudden there was a rumbling and my brain wanted to process what was going on. So the first thought I had was, must be a train. But I didn't live near train tracks, so that was out. And then I thought, well, there must be moving furniture upstairs. But then the refrigerator started coming towards me, and I realized it's probably not it. So I, I you know, these were split-second thoughts. It's not like I was sitting there pondering while putting myself in danger. But my first instinct with this strange moment was to make it familiar. My first instinct was to figure it out from what I already knew. So I think it becomes easier to think about the strange as becoming something familiar rather than making, uh, rather than um, challenging the familiar as strange. Does that make sense? It's easier, I think, to try to challenge the strange than it is to challenge the familiar. And I, and I feel like Lisa was talking about that earlier. Um, it takes more effort. It's harder to challenge what's familiar because it, you can't see it. You can't pick it apart as easily. So I also want to know, um, this would be interactive, sorry, you won't just be listening to me. Um, who was primarily raised in the UK? Okay, and who was primarily raised not in the UK? For all of us international folks. Um, who did not pay fees to attend university? Who still has student debt? I find that really interesting, because actually to me, to not have student debt is very strange. My student debt is six figures. And in the U.S., you're, it's never forgiven. It's yours till you die. You can't even declare bankruptcy. So that is very strange. I don't know how to make that familiar, I'll be honest. But I think that is, that's an interesting, because even in this room, if we think about context, if we think about higher education context, there's plenty in this room to talk about an international, international context as well as, as time context uh, and debt context. So I want to talk about storytelling as it's relevant to thinking about higher education. So um, the practice of storytelling, I mean, we know it's been going on for centuries um, it's as a matter of preserving human history. And I come from a, fa a family of storytellers. Uh, we tell stories to celebrate, to entertain, to reminisce and remember, to share our history and ourselves. 
And I conduct qualitative research because there are some things I feel like uh, about the human experience that cannot be quantified, that cannot be enumerated. Stories allow for the experiences to be understood, for meaning to be made, for progress to be sought in context. Numbers alone cannot create knowledge without the so about the social world. Storytellers and qualitative researchers must first be caring listeners, open to fully hearing someone else's story so that it can be retold, so that meaning can be made. And I believe it's possible to be both an ethical, skilled, rigorous researcher and an honest and engaging storyteller, um, telling the stories of my participants in a way that has the potential to create positive change, that is interesting. Um, and in this talk, that involves my own story. So within my doctoral research at the University of uh, Sussex, I looked at the university experiences of the daughters of single mothers in the United Kingdom. Um, and in that, I was both insider and outsider, because I am a first-generation student from a working-class American single mother family. I'm insider in that case, because most of my, all of my participants were the daughters of single mothers. Um, most of them identified as working class. All of them identified as first-generation. But I'm an outsider since I'm an American researching in a country context and a cultural context that's not my own. Um, so the topic is simultaneously intimately familiar and strangely, perhaps surprisingly foreign. And I say surprisingly because I think there's a tendency to imagine the U.S. and the U.K. are pretty much the same, apart from the ways we pronounce basil and oregano, or capillaries and Byzantine, <laughs> which I think are the ones that surprise people. Did you know that we say capillaries? <laughs> um, but the American university, uh, you know, higher education context is, is different. It's different in ways I think people aren't familiar with. So somebody asked me if community colleges were like um, uh, post-92 universities. Uh, no, community colleges would be like a, a further education, would be the further, do you know what I'm talking about? So it would be like Effie. And I started in a community college because it was cheaper. It was cheaper to start in a community college and transfer those credits to uh, a degree granting, a bachelor's degree granting institution. So, um, and our degrees are four years, so I, I spent a year and a half at a community college and transferred to uh, a bachelor's degree institution, which was a, a state university, and that, that I believe by reputation would be the equivalent of a post-92. Um, I also worked at a secular single gender university in Boston, um, a women's university in Boston, and I also worked at a private religiously affiliated university um, in California. So I have, an, I feel like I've got quite a, an array of understandings of the of the higher education system in the in the states. Um, I, I, as far as making this strange, or, or trying to question the familiar and make it strange. When you're a student in the States, attendance is mandatory. You can't not show up to class. So I don't understand why that's something that happens here. But is, is everybody familiar? If you're, if you're teaching undergrads, you know they don't have to show up. Um, and I find that bizarre. And I, and I would like to make that strange. That shouldn't be familiar. Um, <laughs> the first year counts uh, in, the, in the States. You can't just skate by. And this, the first year counts. Your grades count throughout. So the notion that the first year doesn't count very bizarre, so I'd like to make that familiar strange. Um, from my experience, I was never taught by anybody who didn't have a PhD in, my, in all of the four degrees I've earned. So my bachelor's, my two master's, and my PhD, I've never been taught by somebody who didn't already have their PhD. And I only had, in that entire time, one uh, big lecture theater lecture uh, class. I've never uh, experienced other than my one bio 101 class. So I, didn't, I always had seminar classes. So this is very different. So the, so the style here of, of education, and actually as we move towards more and more massive uh, classrooms, it's very different, and I would like to make that familiar foreign. Um, I also think that it's interesting that what WP is practiced differently in the States. So widening participation in the States is not called that, um, but we have the same practices. It just doesn't have the umbrella term. 
The difference is that, the, that most universities will have an office to support underrepresented students, but that office will usually be led by someone with a PhD. The notion that it would be led by someone with a marketing background is completely strange to me. That most WP teams here are led by somebody who's really good at recruiting you into the door, but could give a hoot if you succeed. It's not their job. And I, I want to make that strange. That shouldn't be familiar. Um, cost of university is a major factor in the States, deciding where you go. It didn't matter if I had the grades for Harvard. I wasn't going to go. When I went to university, um, when I went to uh, my undergrad, degree cost me under $9,000 a year. That included housing and, and expenses, cost of living. Um, so that was fees, everything from toothpaste to tuition, under $9,000 a year. Uh, at the same time, Harvard's tuition alone was 38000 a year. And of course, it's more now. So um, it's, going to, it's going to probably become the case as uh, fees are increased here. It'll be cheaper for our students here to go to the States. So in case you know but anybody who's thinking about getting their bachelor's degree. Um, uh, like I said, loans uh, cover everything. So, uh, and I'll have those loans till I die or pay them off. Probably die first. Um, we don't have the same system, so there's no forgiveness. Um, and our, our uh, interest rates are quite high as well. Um, so, so debt, I think the, the notion of debt is very different from the American context. Student debt, but also other debts. So uh, medical debt, for example, something that if you're uh, a British citizen, you don't have to worry about, at least not yet. Uh, I know that you're looking to, apparently the, the, the privatization has already begun. Um, but I feel like we should be, the, the American um, example should be the uh, foreshadowing of bad things to come if we continue that direction. But that, but that notion of debt and medical debt and student debt being very American, um, and I feel like we're moving towards that here. So as, uh, as the TEF proposes that we're going to roll out tuition differences, I think that we're going to see very similar things that, that I've lived through in my lifetime. So students starting at a post-92 that might be cheaper and trying to transfer to somewhere that has a better name. It's really unusual, I think, now to transfer in the UK. <coughs> as we have differentiated fees, that won't be the case. I can guarantee it, because that's true for my country. So I think that um, what I bring as an American, even though I think there's a sense that, that American is, is British just with a different accent, I think what I bring is a, is a, con a, a higher education context that is in many ways radically different, but also um, scary because we're moving that direction. Uh, so this is a, a quote by Holman Jones uh, talking about autoethnography, um, and for me, it, it, I couldn't not do autoethnography with my study. It felt it felt like I had to be a part of it. She's, she wrote, look, look at the intersections in the work of personal storytellers, performance ethnographers, and social protest performers as examples of how you might radically contextualize your text and your subjectivity, embody personal and community accountability, attend to connection without collapsing or foreclosing debate, dialogue and difference, move people to understand their world and its oppressions in new ways, and create the possibility of resistance and hope. Um, I think many of us will be familiar with Mills, who suggested that sociology ex exists at the intersection of biography, of history, and of society. And engaging in autoethnography, um, autoethnographic research practices allows me to view those intersections from different angles and through multiple lenses. As an insider and outsider, I use my stories, my history, my experiences, my ways of knowing and understanding the world to illuminate how I'm thinking about and interpreting my participants' stories, their histories, their experiences, and their ways of knowing and understanding. I think autoethnography auto is misunderstood as narcissistic and self-indulgent. Um, 
I know that to, to some academics, adding my voice and my story to my research using autoethnography mm. as an analytical tool might seem strange. But stories like mine are not told in higher education because it's assumed that students like me are not sitting inside your classrooms. When I tell you I'm the daughter of an ex-convict, and I tell you that I'm the first in my family to go to university, and now I stand before you having completed my PhD with no corrections, I'm telling you a story that you rarely or you have never heard in higher education. Uh, it's my father who was incarcerated, not my mother. She is a saint. Um, <laughs> when autoethnography challenges the dominant narratives about who is and who is not part of the academy, then I think it becomes more clear the value the research practice can add as a way of making the familiar strange and the strange familiar. Um, this is a quote by Butler here, talking about the personal's political. The feminist claim that the personal's political suggests in part that subjective experience is not only structured by existing political arrangements, but affects and structures those arrangements in turn. Feminist theory has sought to understand the way in which systemic or pervasive political and structural, uh, cultural structures are enacted and reproduced through individual acts and practices and how the analysis of ostensibly personal situations is clarified through situating the issue in a broader and shared cultural context. For me, the personal was very political. I started my thesis with the, the line, I am illegitimate. The first line of my thesis is, I am illegitimate. Um, I had a bit of pushback from my second supervisor, not my first though, Penny Jane was quite supportive, uh, but my second thought um, that I might be risking um, major corrections if I started with, I am illegitimate, instead of, um, my introduction chapter where I tell you about my, my, my study. Um, my context chapter then is, the, is where I start, and I start with legitimacy, notions of legi legitimacy uh, as it relates to being born outside of wedlock, but also notions of legitimacy as far as who was considered legitimate in higher education, whose voices are heard in higher education, whose uh, contributions are valued, whose stories are told. So I start with I am illegitimate because it was the only place I could start. Um, I was going to fight for that, but actually it didn't come up in the Bible. It was fine. Um, but so, so the, the, the personal is, is political. It was very political for me. Um, and there was no other way to start for me. Uh, autopornography had to be part of, of the way I understood my research. And um, I really love this quote by, by Hay. Um, my central argument in defending the use of the personal voice is that it is conversely the angry refusal to forget one's history that is at stake here. Um, I don't know what my thesis would have looked like without me in it. I don't think it would have been authentic if I didn't talk about my own history. And I, 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 I believe uh, that my, I'm not the central part of my thesis, I'm peripheral, uh, because of course it's the, it's the voices of my participants that's central, but I believe my voice was um, a part of something, a part of that, a necessary part of that in understanding the data. Um, oh my goodness, 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 goodness. This is a map of the world, so if you're familiar, it's the world. We already talked about earthquakes, so let's talk about geography. So um, there's America. Oh, the, so there's North America over there on that side. Um, and a little tiny is uh, the UK. So that, uh, in the 2010 census, the United States showed that single-parent households made up 26.5% of all families of dependent children. And uh, here in 2011, the census said that it's 26% uh, of all families of dependent children. So the likelihood in both countries is about one out of every four children is being raised by a single parent, usually a single mother. 92% um, of single parents in this country are single mothers. But actually, I want to talk about the map specifically. We talk about the way we understand knowledge, the way we understand international, uh, what, it, what it means to be international. This is probably the map we're most familiar with, school map. This is the Mercator map. It was created in 1596. And it's largely the map that's used still in every classroom. 
Is anybody familiar with the uh, map that's been making headlines this week? So this is the orthograph map created by a Japanese designer, uh, award-winning, considered the most accurate rendering of the world map. Now, remember that the, the map we've been using was since the 1500s. We've been using the same map since the 1500s, and uh, probably no surprise, it centers around the Western world for the most part. I think this one, one, the one thing I would say is I still feel like the Western world is very central in many ways here. I think you could look at it from a different angle. But the difference is it's accurate as far as land mass. So the Mercator map, the map we've been using since the 1500s, um, is inaccurate in that Africa is 14 times it's larger than Greenland, the Mercator map shows it as the same size. Uh, so the continent of Africa is 14 times larger than Greenland, but the Mercator map shows it the same size. Brazil is five times larger than Alaska, but Alaska is shown as larger on the Mercator map. India is three times the size of Scandinavian countries put together, but somehow they're depicted similarly on the map. The Mercator map also shows Europe as larger than North America, but sorry, North America trumps that. We might have a problem with Trump next week, but that's... <laughs> the Mercator map also shows Russia as, Russia as larger and Australia as smaller. So the map we've been using since the 1500s positions a knowledge, a truth that's not real, an unquestioned familiar, a familiar that for centuries has been how we learn about the world. Is anybody familiar with this map? So uh, this is a map out of research by uh, Stuart Laycock, uh, his book's called All the Countries We've Ever Invaded and the Few We Have Never Gotten Round To. These uh, in pink, or whatever color it seems to be appearing on the screen, are the countries, um, the 171 countries that the UK has either invaded or fought conflicts within, uh, which is nine, about 90% of the world. Um, and so I think in thinking about maps, which I think might sound strange, but if you think about the international context in which we're thinking about higher education, uh, this has a real relevance. I know that it's already been mentioned, but the, the work that student groups have been doing, uh, student campaigns have been doing around decolonizing the curriculum, um, the campaigns around uh, why is my curriculum so white, uh, the, the work to address the racism within PREVENT, I think all of that work um, seeks to make what's become familiar strange, what's been familiar for centuries strange. Um, and I feel like I don't have a lot of time, but I, want, I do want to talk about some of my own data, so I think I might skip ahead. I will say, so um, I want to give a bit of context about the way single mothers are constructed in the UK and the US. Um, it's problematic in both countries, so that's the, uh, the short version. So, um, but so for example, uh, David Cameron bl blamed the 2011 riots on um, single mother families. Uh, if anybody, I don't know if anybody's familiar with that. Or in my own country, so he, uh, he called it the moral collapse of society, I should say. And then in the, uh, the U.S., there was, a, for example, in 2014, there was a Wall Street Journal article comparing single mothers to cancer. Um, the, a few of the, the, the conservatives who were running for president um, said some pretty terrible things about single mothers. Not Trump, though. He's said everybody else but single mothers so far. But, um, <laughs> but yes, um, there was um, Rand Paul who ran. Uh, he blamed... Uh, the breakdown of family structure for the, what's going wrong with society, um, even though his own son's been arrested three times, even though he was raised in a, a nuclear family. And then um, Jeb Bush also uh, suggested that single mothers should feel shame and should face harsher ridicule in society. Um, and like Rand Paul's son, Jeb, two of Jeb Bush's son, uh, children have been um, arrested, even though they're raised in nuclear families. I find that really interesting and ironic. 
Um, so but I'll skip it because I'm running out of time. Uh, these are some memes. Again, if we're talking about the ways that single mother families are constructed in both countries, obviously mom is more uh, an American country context, so mom, not as, as opposed to mom. But if you search for memes for single mom, you're not going to find anything much better. This uh, um, up here in the corner is from the Daily Mail. Uh, it says, we don't need a man. Uh, research shows that children from single parents are more likely to do badly in school and get in trouble. And of course, the file photo they choose to use is uh, young people in hoodies. Um, they were all a bunch of uh, terrible folks. So, um, I'll skip ahead because I only have a few minutes, but I want to talk about some of my data. I, th I know that Lisa, she's just left, was talking about the fact that in, with ethnography, there's often a tendency to look for the dazzling ethnography, the way that um, things are different. But I want to talk about how some things are the same. So, the way that my participants talked about expectations of them it's very similar to um, how I understood expectations of the daughters of single mothers in my country. So this notion that you're not expected to amount to much, uh, hopefully you can read some of this, that you're not expected to amount to much, you're expected to become a criminal or an alcoholic, to be unemployed, to be a single mother yourself. And, and there's so much talk here um, in the UK about raising aspirations, and it's really hard to imagine yourself um, being aspirational if all that society expects of you um, is that you're just going to... Um, be a scrounger. In fact, scrounger was the the word used the most in almost every one of my interviews. They talked about uh, benefit scrounger as the as the term most associated with single mother families. And it's and for me that's it's interesting because it, it obviously relates to our version of that term would be the welfare queen. And both both are myths. Both are are myths meant to um, to keep people in their place. Um, there is no such thing as a welfare queen. It was made up by. Uh, Oh, when he was campaigning. Oh, he was Thatcher's best buddy. Somebody. Our president in the 80s. Reagan. Thank you very much. Reagan made up the myth of the welfare queen. He talked about a woman that didn't exist um, driving a Cadillac, getting her nails done. The myth didn't exist before he talked about it. Um, but what's interesting, and in, in, it, come, it came up, like I said, in almost every single interview, the idea of the scrounger, the benefit scrounger, um, is the need for so many of my participants to, to say that the scrounger exists, but their families are not one of them. This was true of my mother. She would say, well, for queens exist, I'm just not one of them. The need to first internalize the myth, to believe the myth is true or it's based on some truth, before you can identify outside of that, before you can insist that you are not that, you must first accept that that is a truth that you have to insist against. Um, and it's interesting, I mean, in my case, my mother had two children by two different men, lived on benefits, um, and both of our fathers were in prison. So I feel like when people do talk about the myth of the, of the welfare queen, they think of her as a scary monster. But she wants to make sure people know she's respectable, as she is. Of course she is. Um, but that, that the fear of being seen as the monster is what drives her to identify as, that, that is, the welfare queen exists, but I'm just not one of them. I know, I'm out of time, sorry. I want to talk about what was most surprising, actually, to me, um, being an American, was the was accents. Accents was the number one thing that came up that I found most surprising. Um, I see some head shaking. I guess, um, for those of you who did grow up in a British context, you know accents are still a problem, are still a thing seen as a problem you must overcome. And that was the most bizarre to me, the most thing, the thing that, that was so familiar that I wanted to make so strange. Um, because what, why is that still a thing? Um, but it came up a lot. 
in, in, um, in my interviews. The notion of um, either accents or not having the language to speak and be heard. Um, so in here, uh, Heather says, I don't feel like I belong. I mean, I'm not very well spoken, so sometimes I feel a bit put down when people start using big words, and I think I don't, that's not how I speak. At the same time, I'm an ethnic minority in a class full of white people. We talk about race, it's like a very touchy subject. Some of the things that have happened to me, some of the things people have said to me, this is life experience. I don't think anyone else in my class could ever fully understand. Um, I have a few minutes. Um, I think what I want to do is get to the last couple. Sorry, I clearly had far too many that I could possibly talk about. Um, I want to talk about these, the, the last two. Uh, I can't win. If I'm successful, I haven't booked, I, I've booked a trend. Well done, Jeanette, they will say, haven't you done well? As if somehow, be, coming from a single mother, I must be mentally subnormal. If I fail, no one will really bat an eyelid. It's no wonder they will say it's to be expected. It becomes an issue no matter what, what I do, where I go. When people ask you about your parents and you're obliged to correct them, saying parents, dropping the S, then the silence, the pity, their desperation, and not knowing what to say. I'm not broken, I don't need fixing. And then this quote from Erica, I started university doubting that people like me are good enough, are worthy to become teachers, are worthy to make a difference. I finished university knowing that I'm as worthy and able as any other person, yet sadly I finished university also proving them right. My story reifies the neoliberal narrative that if you work hard, if you make sacrifices, that if you want to, then anyone can achieve, no matter their background, their problems, their financial status. What's sad is that narrative is wrong. Without benefits and a social safety net, I'd never have achieved. I entered the system and university feeling like an intruder, feeling like I shouldn't be there, feeling like I should drop out. And these are the stories I want us to look at, to question what's become familiar. Whose knowledge matters? Whose voices are heard? Whose stories are told? Whose contributions are valued? Whose experiences are validated? How are the cultures and practices of the university further reifying norms about who does and does not belong, as well as who is and who is not seen as legitimate? What space is there for underrepresented students, including the daughters of single mothers, to tell our stories? How can academia contribute to a culture shift that broadens narratives and challenges um, and challenges make, make strange the familiar, the norms, assumptions, and stereotypes through which underrepresented students are misrecognized? And I will stop there. Uh, one minute before.